There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with Maria Smith, a former founding director of the architecture practice studio Weave, and a current founding director of Interabank, a multifaceted design studio she leads alongside Steve Webb and Andy Yates of Webb Yates Engineers. With the critic Phineas Harper, Maria also runs the raucous architecture debate series known as Turncoats, and is co-curating next year's Oslo Architecture Triennale. Alongside Harper, Interabank associate Matthew Dalzil and the Norwegian urban researcher and artist Cicely Sachs Olsen. I met with Maria in Shoreditch at the office of Henley Hillbrand Architects, where I work. In the interview, we talk about, among other things, the origin of Studio Weave and its knowingly naive and hallucinatory approach to design. And, following her departure from that practice, the change in Smith's outlook on architecture and her role within the discipline. We also talk about ideas Smith has been exploring in the lead-up to next year's Triennale, around the distinctions between human flourishing and economic growth. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. always been drawn to your work and I guess you as a persona in the architecture scene in London because to me you kind of seem to have this deep loathing for architecture but also a deep I'm so glad that comes across but also <laughs> but also a deep love for it and I feel like I haven't met a lot of people like that um, and I wonder if has that always been your relationship to architecture Probably my relationship to everything. Um, <laughs> I, I think, you know, that thing where if a relationship is important to you, then you want to keep fiddling with it and working on it and, you know, because you care about it. And I suppose that's my relationship to architecture or the built environment more generally. I, I really, I care about it, but it is really flawed. Um, but I can't let that go. But I think that's, but that's also the source of a lot of, uh, inspiration, I suppose, in a way as well. That if you, you know, if you can find something that you can really get pissed off about, then um, and that's probably the starting point or the jump, jumping off point for something that you can then explore and figure out. Okay, well, what can I do about this, or how can I change this, or how can I interrogate it? And so, I uh, there's this word that gets thrown around probably too much today, but trying to disrupt things a little bit. Yeah, but not for disruption's sake. You know, I work with. Um, a lot of brilliant people and when they do brilliant work when they do work that is in, in areas that you know there's no way that I can compete with that and I can be interested in it and I can see it, its greatness to an extent you know but I'm, I don't I wouldn't try to interfere with that or disrupt those processes when I feel like in awe of them and that they're going very well and so on so I'm, I don't think I'm a uh, agitator necessarily but I think that when I see things that are upsetting then I want to try and get involved with them in some way uh, so I feel like I, it's it's a theme that as an outsider I can kind of trace through your career to date and I wondered if we could just start back at the beginning of your your own professional practice okay and starting the firm Studio Weave Way back in, what, 2006? Yes. So, so long ago now. <laughs> yeah, what were the circumstances under the, the establishment of that practice? Um, so in the autumn of 2005, um, there was a, 
an event in the, in the run-up to the London Architecture Biennale 2006, which was, uh, they called it September School, and it was about getting students from all over the country to kind of come together and work on ideas for public spaces in London that then they would hopefully sort of get sponsorship for and um, build some of these as part of the festival in, in 2006. Um, and that just seemed like a really sort of interesting weekend to meet a bunch of architecture students from all over and, you know, just probably make some friends, do some designs, have some beers, whatever, you know. <laughs> um, then that started a process that then defined the next 10 years of my life, um, whereby, um, so my partner at the time, Jay, and I went to this, um, went to this September school. We came up with a design um, that we then took to 100% um, detail, I think it was, um, and sort of started to try and garner some sponsorship. And then in the end, we completely redesigned the thing to a much better thing. Um, but it just kind of, it ended up that we were able to build this project, this live project. And that just seemed tremendously exciting as an architecture student to build something of your own design for real. This was 2006, so there was money. <laughs> it wasn't difficult um, to get sponsorship. And so we basically, we just followed that opportunity. And then after that, there are a couple of other opportunities that came up. So oh, maybe you could look at this, maybe you could do something for the City of London. And so basically, we decided, well, we'd better form a practice then. Um, just thinking that, well, we were only in third year. Um, we still would need to finish our studies and whatever, but, but maybe we could have this kind of little practice that could do little projects in public spaces or something like that would roll along um, beside our finishing our studies and stuff and I would be like kind of a really amazing yeah, thing on the portfolio. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that you'd started the practice while you were still in school. Yeah. Um, well, because, I mean, it, it was serious practice, but it was, it was also it was, it was an opportunity and it's so hard to start your own practice that an opportunity comes up, I think you have to take that very seriously and decide whether or not you want to jump on it. And, you know, to be honest, it felt pretty uh, ill-equipped, mm. <laughs> you know, in a lot of ways. We, had, we weren't even part ones, mm. um, but we had a lot of support around us um, and mentors. So you said, like, you kind of made a commitment early on to take that seriously, establishing a practice, even though you were in school. And, like, that, that word even just kind of primes me to ask this question about um, playfulness and irreverence that I feel like characterizes weave, which uh, is, as a practice, is so interested in narrative and, and, and fairy tales and the kind of whimsical side, the kind of dreamlike qualities mm -hmm. of architecture and design, um, which obviously can be done, executed seriously, and uh, can be, it can be a really useful persuasive tool, which is a serious kind of rhetorical tool, right? Yeah. But as a practice identity, it's incredibly whimsical and incredibly playful. And I feel like, well, I just wonder, like, was that always an attitude you had towards design? Um, or if not, where did you pick that up? I think, I think the irreverence was probably there. I think... I mean, speaking for myself, I think that's probably quite ingrained. <laughs> um, and I think there was, we were reacting a little bit to the sort of extreme seriousness of the profession in so many ways and thinking that, you know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't need to be so serious, doesn't need to be so great. It could be a bit more magical. It could be a bit more playful and youthful and... Um, you know, it seemed in so many ways a kind of old white man's game. Um, but um, I think in entering the industry as baby professionals, um, which we very much were, and in, I think probably it grew as well in the way that, you know, I, I remember so often like going to meetings and people, I'm thinking, this is ridiculous, I'm 23, no one's going to take me seriously oh, well, let's make sure they don't need to then. <laughs> kind of, it's like, <laughs> I've got a wrinkle, great. You know. um, things have changed now. Um, but, um, yeah, I think, you know, we were, to some extent, was where I was at that point in my life. And so play that up, play to your strengths, play to that kind of, you know, slightly subvert what people are expecting of you. 
Um, and it, it also it worked, so we developed it, mm. it evolved. I mean, I've always, I've, I've always liked writing. I've always made up stories. I have three little sisters. They took a lot of entertaining when they were young. I made up a lot of stories for them. <laughs> I used to get in trouble for getting them too excited before bed. Um, so that was just, it, that was something that I'd always done. And so it was quite kind of natural in a way to take that into a professional life. I wonder if we could talk just really briefly about one project that we did um, while you were there, which to me is kind of characteristic of the practice during that period, uh, which is the Lullaby Factory. Mm -hmm. um, just for people who might not be familiar with what Weave was or, or what it is. Um, yeah, so I mean, that's, um, I'm glad that you picked that one out. It's one of my favorites. Um, so the Lullaby Factory is a project for Great Ormond Street Hospital. Um, which is a children's hospital and they have this really complex site um, in the centre of London where they have this phasing plan where they need to kind of build a new building then knock the other building down and sort of after they've moved all of the programme across and so on so it's almost as if they've always got one too many buildings um, in order to kind of do this, um, do this developing development and what this resulted in was this new building with children's wards that were designed to look over this beautiful public space, beautiful garden, um, but for a period of 15, 20 years, they knew we were going to look over the back of an old building that was absolutely covered in plant, totally covered in like pipes of different sizes, weird bits of cable hanging off the wall, you know, like just... And it was a very... It was a tricky site. It was a kind of a weird, slithery crack almost... Um, that in some places was less than a metre sort of deep. And yet this, the new building had these kind of huge, enormous, you know, beautiful windows that would have a great connection with nature. One day, will do still. Um, but in the meantime, don't look after anything good. So they held a competition to, um, well, actually they held a, a call for interest. Um, so they just wanted a kind of approach, a bit of text, not a design, um, as to how um, some artists, it was a call for artists, could perhaps make this space a little bit more palatable. So um, the idea with the Lullaby Factory was rather than try and hide all of this plant, was just to get it to mean something else. So you're still looking at the same stuff, but rather than it being an association with, you know, power stations and, you know, scary stuff, make it mean something much more magical. And so in order to do that, we basically didn't touch any of the pipes. All of the pipes stayed, all of the ducts stayed. Um, but we just added these kind of imaginary trumpets and processing elements. And we gave them all ridiculous names. And we worked with a composer who wrote an actual lullaby that you could listen to um, on the um, hospital's radio system um, that was composed as though it was actually being made by this fantasy lullaby factory. Um, You're kind of seeing um, latent possibilities within relatively banal situations. You're trying to enliven them based on how they are and trying to amplify inherent qualities, yeah. which to me is like, that's quite a like capital A, like uh, everyday kind of architectural approach. And yet you apply it in a way that is almost hallucinatory. <laughs> there were no drugs involved there. <laughs> um, okay, so the phrase that we used to use a lot was um, to make something the best version of itself. Um, to not try and make the example, you know, to not try and make Romford Copenhagen, right. but uh, to make Romford the best version of Romford. Um, and my favourite thing about that phrase is that after we'd been using it uh, a couple of years, we found out that. David Chipperfield uses exactly the same one. No. <laughs> I was like, this is brilliant. I mean, uh, I haven't checked it with him, um, but somebody that, a friend that used to work there says, yeah, but he says exactly the same thing. So obviously that's nonsense. Um, but yeah, it is definitely, it's capital A architecture and, you know, talk about kind of, uh, you know, contextual architecture and things like that. But and the, it's, you could take an approach to truth to materials and less is more and all of those kinds of tenets. And it would be the same. You, you could probably think of it in the same way. Um, but I think 
really, yes, there's this sort of situation that you're coming into and you can come into that thinking, I'm going to make this the best version of itself. But really, it's very much an interaction between you and the thing. And depending on who you are in that moment, that the best version that you see of this thing in front of you is going to be completely different. So I think, you know, probably David Chipperfield um, will see something and think of the way that he can make it the best version of itself and the way that I would do that or... Donald Trump would do that you know everyone's going to do that in radically different ways so I think you know it was a it was a useful phrase but uh, <laughs> it's kind of also a nonsense <laughs> <laughs> so you left weave in what 2014 uh yeah 15 2015 and at that point it seems like a lot of things changed in terms of uh the kind of work you were looking to do not only uh in terms of the design work but in terms of the, um, can we call it activism? I don't know. Kind of public organizing around architecture. Mm. And so there are three things that I hope we can talk more about along these lines. The first is Turncoats, mm -hmm. which is a, a kind of public debate series around themes in architecture in London and around the world. Mm -hmm. The second is... Uh, this column you've been writing for the uh, REBA journal, mm -hmm. Royal Institute of British Architects journal. Um, and then the third is obviously Interroban, your current practice, which you run alongside uh, Web Yates engineers. Mm -hmm. So all of these things, they didn't happen like simultaneously exactly, I don't think, but no. there was a kind of like key change in terms of uh, how you worked and how you operate and how you thought about architecture, I guess, and your place in this, in this uh, discipline. So could we talk about that transition generally first? Yeah, I have some weird spreadsheets at home where I've tried to unpick it myself. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> so the Reba Journal work started um, maybe a year or so before. Um, I can't remember exactly now, but... Um, the earliest ones I could find were like 2013. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's it. I yeah. can't remember. Um, I'd have to. Yeah, no, it was, it was 2013, yeah. Um, so I, um, I started by writing, I think it, it, the, the columns were initially kind of a little bit like some of the stories that I would write at Weave, fantasy kind of um, anal um, allegories and slightly fairy tale like um, ways of working out my frustrations with architecture practice more generally but kind of using stories to figure some of that stuff out um, and I, that, that has carried through but the tone has evolved um, I'm a bit more hardcore now sometimes <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely but you know you had, it takes time to find your voice um, but it was I mean it was just it's, it's been and I hope will continue to be um, a really incredible sort of opportunity and discipline to sit down once a month and think what's pissing me off and <laughs> how can I work that out through writing 750 words um, and I still can't believe anybody reads it um, they they give me complete freedom they, I mean it's just incredible um, the rule is that I have to write about the practice of architecture not about any particular project which mm -hmm. is why they're always sort of about themes rather than uh, yeah, any particular work. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, it's just, it's been an incredible discipline and I think it's really helped to evolve my own thinking as well and sort of shape my interests and shape sort of what I wanted to do. Um, and so then Turncoats became, it was kind of connected to that because it's about, again, trying to work out stuff that is, feels problematic um, but again, in the same way that some of the articles use silly stories and futuristic scenarios that are clearly ridiculous and things like that in order to explore things, Turncoats is about creating a permissive atmosphere in which to explore something. Mm. So you don't have to, um, you know, the key rule is that you do not need to believe what you're saying. 
um, the key thing is that you get to the heart of a topic by debating it, by playing devil's advocate, by sometimes saying something that, you know, maybe really you truly do agree with, but another time you could say something that is completely, you know, anathema. Um, and in order to do this, in order to create that atmosphere where people would feel comfortable doing that, we have a number of tricks. They're all public tricks. <laughs> um, the first trick is, I guess, a bit chat about, um, but um, it's all off the record. It is not recorded. Um, it is, um, everybody has their phones sealed away in these kind of silver envelopes um, bef you know, as you enter. So you are, you are not encouraged to sort of sit down there and tweet everything as you go. You should be there, present in the room and engaging with the debate. And then that will affect you and that is fine. You don't need to kind of um, write things down verbatim. And I'm sure, you know, obviously there's a little bit of that that happens. But, um, but it's important that everybody is quite ceremoniously removed from social media um, while they're in the room. And I think that's, that's a really key part of it. Um, another thing is booze. Booze is important. <laughs> Just to me, generally. Um, so we don't do that thing that a lot of events do where you go to the talk and then you get a beer afterwards. You have a beer before, then you have vodka, <laughs> yes. and then you get into the debate, <laughs> and then you have more beers. Um, but, I mean, it's, it's not to kind of encourage alcoholism, but it is just about creating a, a kind of association with a, a more, uh, yeah, party atmosphere. Um, so when people come in, they have their phones sealed away, they get a beer, there's music playing, the music is normally and somehow connected to the theme and so on. Um, and then we have a, a comedian that opens the night. That's a really important part of it as well, so it kind of warms people up very literally. Um, and also just, again, creates, sort of shifts the, the atmosphere to something that's not your staid architecture debate, but mm. that's something that is just a bit different and a bit weird and a bit disarming. Mm -hmm. um, and then yeah, we've just we've had um, we've had a few debates in London. We had the kind of first series in uh, the 2016, no, 2015-16 winter, um, and then we published the format online because we we really liked it and we thought it was really fun and that could be applied by lots and lots of people in sort of different ways. And so we published it online and said, if anyone wants to, you know, use it, go ahead. Mm -hmm. um, I'm absolutely amazed that people from various far-flung locations that took it up um, so there have been yeah there's been turncoats all over the world it's really exciting it's kind of like the equivalent of a TEDx spin-off or something because I noticed yeah it's it's a it's becoming an international phenomenon within the small world of architecture yeah, at least I mean, yeah. <laughs> a small international phenomenon yeah. it's all right isn't it <laughs> um, I hope a positive one though so you know <laughs> I just want to read a couple of the titles of the Turncoats debates because okay. I feel like they're really <laughs> telling. Uh, the first one was Quit Architecture Now, and that really got my attention. I was so excited for this because uh, I feel like um, it really touched on um, the ambivalence that I felt and I know a lot of my uh, peers in architecture felt around whether or not this is really it. Mm. Um, the, other one, the next one was the Consultation Con, followed by Vanity Publishing, Ornament is Crime is Crime, The Gender Agenda. There was one on nepotism, I can't remember the name of it. Tosh, posh, tosh. <laughs> and then there was one that was just called Fuck London. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a strong one. <laughs> and, I mean, there's been... Good to know we're allowed to swear on this. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely, go for it. <laughs> I probably already have. <laughs> I can't uh, seem to help myself, much to my mother's dismay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the way you described the, um, the organization or the structure of the debate, um, it sounds like it's, about, it's, it's as much about taking pleasure in the act of debate as it is about actually arriving somewhere with it. And I know that that's been the criticism for some of the debates, that um, in the end, these are serious issues um, that are being treated um, too lightly. Mm. And I know that that's the attitude that Turncoast is going against. Like, why so serious? Mm -hmm. Why can't this be a joyous kind of public spectacle? Um, but at the same time, do these subjects need a serious edge? Yeah, and I, th I mean, I don't think Turncoast isn't taking these subjects seriously. It's 
you know, the truest things are said in jest, right? I mean, mm. it's the idea is that by approaching things through a different medium, um, and yes, okay, a debate is still a debate, but a different kind of format, a different kind of atmosphere, um, and a different approach, that maybe you can get to something that you couldn't get to um, in another way. And the validity of that kind of thought that you would have is is just as valuable and is just as uh, relevant to the you know the real really kind of serious um, serious side to that conversation I'm so as glad, is the rest of it. So. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that. The, um, the what did you say? The truest things are said in jest. Yeah, I can't remember who said it now though. Um, we can Google it. <laughs> <laughs> I won't because it'll stop the recording. I, I, that <laughs> happened before and I learned my lesson. Um, but I, so when I first kind of discovered your work, it was through the articles in the Reba Journal. And uh, the portrait of you, it's like this beautiful watercolor painting. And <laughs> I look like I've been beaten up. <laughs> no, you, you look like you're a court jester. Oh, great. I thought, <laughs> because you're, the, whatever the sweater is you're wearing has these, I thought it was intentional. I don't know if it was, but from that moment, I always thought of you as this kind of architecture gesture. <laughs> and okay. I can't think of many other people. <laughs> I can work with that. Has no one ever said that before? No, that's that's. I new. feel like and that's original. <laughs> because the cri- the critique, at least in the writing, it's coming from the uh, one of the most august established institutions, architectural institutions in the world, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Royal uh, Institute of British Architects Journal. And you're on the inside stirring shit up. <laughs> Great news. <laughs> and so, yeah, in my mind, you've always been this kind of court gesture, uh, gesture of architecture. Okay, well, I can run with that. Um. <laughs> hmm. I don't know where to go with so that. There's a tremendous pressure to be funny with that that's the problem and mm. I'm, I'm not funny I'm, I'm I don't try to be funny I try I think to um maybe be surprising um or maybe exploit the fact that I have very little shame <laughs> um I think both with with weave with turncoats with the rebajan with a lot of things um I feel like a lot more people would be doing this if they weren't embarrassed to. <laughs> um, and for whatever reason, um, I don't really have that hang-up. So, mm. you know, I don't think it's some great sense of imagination or intelligence or anything. I think it's just... Mm-hmm. It's a kind of humility, <laughs> I guess. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what I want to try and do now is, like, change tech a little bit and go from... Um, the kind of rabble-rousing side of what you do uh, towards something that, to me, is becoming more... um, I don't want to say serious. Grown up? (laughs) No, I don't want to say that either. I I was sure you were going to say that. We're going to find... Let's find a word for it. I think it's like... Well, just... I guess we could talk about how your writing started to change and the writing for uh, the Reba Journal in particular, Mm -hmm. where it seems to me like um, you're starting to... um, Bring, bring ideas from philosophy into architecture in a way that equally a lot of people would, might feel either ill-equipped or embarrassed to even attempt in the first place. And so in that sense, this kind of like lack of shame or whatever you call it still applies. And yet the ideas themselves are actually becoming more... Um, tricky. Mm. <laughs> there was one article in particular that um, really struck me, um, which was called In Defense of Our Dépenses. Mm. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that word right. Dépenses. Dépenses. <laughs> it's a French word. <laughs> it's a French word. Say it Frenchly. <laughs> it's a French word. It's, an, uh, it's a concept coined by this uh, French philosopher, Georges Bataille, who I frankly know almost nothing about. But Me neither. <laughs> Please don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> no. But I felt like something was happening there that was really interesting because, well, could we actually, could we talk a little bit about what Dépense is or what you were trying to do with that article? Yeah, I mean, I understand Dépense as, and again, this is my understanding and I am not a scholar on this or on really anything that I write about, but I think it's, that's okay that it's about... Um, 
finding something interesting and finding ways of applying those things from other disciplines into architecture. Um, so whether that be through from philosophy or economics or gender studies or science or whatever. So I think this is the reason that the writing has changed and become trickier um, is because I'm playing more with <clears throat> bringing, bringing like quite big ideas from elsewhere. But I'm, I'm not the expert at any of these ideas. I'm the, the architectural perspective to it in a way. Um, so Depense is about expending excess energy that would otherwise be reinvested in the economy to productive ends in order to stimulate economic growth. Now, <laughs> um, economic growth is extremely problematic in many ways, and I could go on about that, but I think we, we don't have long. No, <laughs> but we will, I think, eventually, because this ties into work you're doing now. Um, all right, well, for now, I'll say that economic growth is very problematic, um, but what is interesting about Depense, from an architectural perspective, is it talks about how we might hamper economic growth through a way uh, that uh, architecture could play with. Um, and so that's, that's very interesting. So the idea, as I've said, so it's about, you know, there's a certain amount of energy that we need to expend in order to live, that we need to sort of feed and clothe and shelter ourselves and so on. Um, and then beyond that, there is additional energy that, um, I mean, energy in the very broader sense that we could put towards all kinds of different endeavors. Um, and what tends to be seen as the sort of moral thing to do at the moment is to use that energy for you know, useful work, do something useful with it, you know, build the economy, create, um, you know, invest in the uh, cultural industries, um, you know, in, the, in the leisure industries and things like that, you know, so that you still use that spare time in order to contribute to your economy and then you're kind of a, a good citizen. Um, but with the idea of Depense is that instead of doing that, that you just, you, you expend, you get rid of that energy and you do so in a social way. You do that in a sort of festive, collective, sort of a way that um, builds, you know, togetherness between people and lovely things like that, you know. Um, and so that things like festivals, the Olympics, um, Burning Man, um, <laughs> and and uh, what could be a lot of great architecture are ways of expending this excess energy. Mm. Um, that last point. So, what do you mean by that? What could mm. be a lot of really great architecture? Well, uh, so for example, um, a lot of exist projects mm. um, are really good examples of this. You know, a lot of people coming together uh, to create something to give their skills. Um, and they, they all vary and they sort of bring together um, this community sometimes for quite short periods of time, you know, did. Um, and, then, and then it was just, it's kind of a party. It's like architecture is the manifestation of a party, right? Mm. This is so <laughs> um, interesting just because for the first time we're coming back to a previous interview I did with, this, uh, with the, the example of Exist or mm -hmm. Exist. Um, I interviewed Joe Gibbons from J&L Gibbons. She's a landscape architect who worked with Muff okay. on the Curve Garden uh -huh. in Dawson. And before the Curve Garden was the Curve Garden, it was an exist project yeah. uh, in collaboration with the Barbican. Yes. Where for, I don't know if it was a month, they turned it into a wheat field and they baked bread. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> I was there quite a lot. <laughs> um, so sorry, that's just, it's just kind of exciting because that hasn't happened before. But... Um, where That's this surprising, concept, it's such a small world. <laughs> yeah, but, but this concept, which I was uh, uh, until now unaware of, is actually kind of latent in um, some of the projects that I find most exciting. Hmm. Um, and I feel like it's latent in a lot of the work that you were doing maybe before you discovered it as well. I mean, the Turncoats debate series seems like definitely yeah. an embodiment <laughs> of this idea of Depence. And so, when did you discover that term, and were you consciously... Oh, about applying? a week before I wrote the article. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, whenever that was. Um, and how, I guess this is like a chance to ask how you research. Like, how do you come across these things? I don't know. No fixed way. 
um, talking to people and reading the news and <laughs> following random trails of thought in the internet. Right, um, okay. You know, just the usual ways, mm -hmm. I suppose. I, just, I like to think I'm interested. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, so this particular article, uh, which I really encourage people to read, because I feel like it's a kind of gateway um, into a different way of thinking about architecture, to me is also a gateway into discussing um, this current project you're working on, the Oslo Triennial. Mm -hmm. Is that how you say it? Uh, Triennale. Triennale, okay. <laughs> the Oslo Triennale. Um, the theme of which is degrowth. We're trying to um, figure out what architecture would be like in a degrowth economy. And we're also interested in what architecture and architects can do to assist in the transition to a degrowth economy. Okay, and so for people who don't know, I guess myself included, what, what exactly is degrowth? Um, so degrowth is a, it's the opposite of economic growth. So rather than an increase in GDP, year on year on year on year, increase in GDP being the measure by which we deem the success of our society at a country level, at city level, at a global scale at the moment, you know, at the moment, the big win is increase in GDP. And this is not good news. Um, we are stuck with this at the moment because we need it in order to kind of manage private public debt. Um, the way that our economy is set up requires that we have this um, grad, uh, continual level of economic growth. Um, but the problem is that it comes with huge costs. It comes at huge costs to the environment. Um, there's a very uh, evident direct correlation between GDP and resource and resource use and energy consumption, which are very obviously problematic. And there are some really interesting models um, <clears throat> that sort of some physicists, for example, have developed to show that if we continue growing our, um, growing our economy at the rate that we currently are, we are literally going to cook ourselves um, within centuries, um, you know, not millennia, centuries. So we hope humans would still be around for that period. Um, and also, not only, economic, uh, not only environmental costs, but also human costs. You know, crudely, the rat race, we are all forced to work harder, longer, stronger. Um, it's, um, you know, whatever the uh, Daft Punk song is. Um, but, <laughs> you know, we're enslaved by this need to earn more money so that we can spend more money. And this is not making us happy. And there is plenty of research as well showing that Beyond a certain point, increasing wealth does not increase well-being, happiness, any of the good stuff. Um, and so the proponents of degrowth say, if we want to save our environmental, our mental health, our communities, our, you know, the, the general state of humanity, then we need to stop being reliant on economic growth and instead move to alternative an alternative model whereby we're not stuck with this kind of 2.9% a year, whatever it is. And I guess this is where a lot of people would be confused because typically we associate architecture with economic development. Mm -hmm. And so how did you pitch this idea to the jury? Uh, like, how did you get um, support for this idea that you would have an architecture triennale focused explicitly on this idea of degrowth as opposed to growth and development? Well, architecture is very much associated with human flourishing. And that's what degrowth is all about. Human flourishing and environmental concerns and yeah, social concerns and so on. Architects and architecture are very uh, engaged with um, all of those topics. And you know, it's not degrowth for the sake of degrowth, it's degrowth for the sake of these things, these things that are really important to architecture and to architects. Um, and so we, we think that um, architects are actually an ideal group of people to have, like, play a big role in this, um, in this change because most of us as individuals went into architecture thinking that we could make 
you know, the world a better place. Um, and yes, we were 18 and naive, but this, this was, you know, kind of a key, a key driver for us. And we thought that we could make the world a better place for, you know, ourselves as individuals, for our families, for our communities and so on. But we also, you know, have thought that we could make the world as a whole and, um, you know, have this kind of legacy that we leave behind that leaves the world in a better state than it was before. You know, the, I mean, it sounds like cheesy stuff, but it is cheesy stuff. Nothing wrong with a bit of cheese. Um, <laughs> <laughs> although I am vegan. Um, but, um, but no, I mean, but, th- but these kinds of motivations are absolutely, they're, they're part of architecture as well. And they're as much a part of architecture, if not more, than making a developer client loads of money. And actually, developers as well, the developers are not the enemy in this. This is not about hair shirt wearing vegans versus developers. We are all complicit in this. We are all trapped in this paradigm of economic growth so it's going to have to involve all of us in some way in order to shift it um, so we're with the Oslo architecture Trinale, we're just trying to explore architecture's role in this thing that arguably is going to happen the question is does it happen by collapse or does it happen by design exactly did you propose? I know I've heard that um, a temporary theater uh, is being erected and um, an exhibition called 50 Futures is being put on. Yeah, so I mean in uh, sort of ways that we've talked about, um, we're going to be using theater and fiction um, as the kind of key tools of exploring this. So it's important to us that this isn't just a, a sort of very dry you know, that, that criticism of a lot of architecture exhibitions, well, exhibitions generally is like, it could have been a book, and if it had been a book, I probably wouldn't have read it. <laughs> um, so instead of that, we want it to be something that you really experience and something that, yeah, you know, means something to you. Um, and we think that theatre and fiction uh, are really good ways to do this, but also ways of exploring really serious um, sort of possible scenarios. Um, so, yeah, we're creating... Um, we're, part of the project is called Teatro Oslo, which is, um, in the end, going to be a number of locations in Oslo that will be home to theatre productions. And these are going to range from kind of some live-action role-play elements to sort of more traditional theatre. Um, and in lots of different ways, we'll be exploring not only what possible future sort of degrowth scenarios might feel like and might be like in the future, um, but also how these kinds of techniques can perhaps be used to shift policy making towards you know, creating a context that is favourable for this kind of degrowth by design. Um, so that's a big part of it. Um, the other thing um, that might be interesting is that rather than having kind of an exhibition catalogue that nobody reads, um, we are planning to have a a book of short stories that's going to be written by some sci-fi authors, some architects. It's going mm. to be a nice mix of kind of different people um, to explore uh, different, yeah, possible degrowth futures or ways that we get there. And that's going to be really, really open, so it should be interesting. And um, what I like about that as well is that that will hopefully be something that people who don't necessarily experience the Trenale in real life at all but that could be kind of just a standalone thing that you can pick up at a bookshop and enjoy um, and you're sort of uh, in its own right. But then there, yeah, so there's um, the 50 Futures exhibition is going to be um, 50 different kinds of um, glimpses of the future. And some of these will be much more worked out 
and they will probably involve, you know, like some really serious architects working with some really serious philosophers working with some really serious physicists to sort of come up with something that's, you know, really thoroughly thought through. And some of these might be 200 words, a little bit hallucinogenic. <laughs> um, but I think it's, you know, one of the important things about this is that we don't know the answer. The um, many proponents of degrowth will will say, you know, this is not about one particular answer. This is not about one alternative. There are so many different alternatives and we need to be exploring many of them. So it's going to be very plural. It's going to have lots of different ideas, some of which will contradict each other and that's fine. It's about exploring lots and lots of different alternatives and hopefully some of these will help to yeah, change the way that people approach their work and do something different on Monday we keep saying like that's what we want people to come to the Trenale and then go home and do something different on Monday okay so this <laughs> this kind of brings us to the last point that I want to talk about which is what you do on Monday what your current work is now it and, is Monday today <laughs> <laughs> but like um, obviously an architecture festival is a fantastic venue and platform for exploring difficult ideas and making provocations mm -hmm. and trying to sway opinion towards uh, um, thinking and practicing differently. You run your own practice, and to some extent, you have control over what you do every day at work. <laughs> to some extent, maybe a limited extent. But of course, yeah. You make decisions about how you work, and I wonder. Like, how would you characterize in Terabang? The word transdisciplinary has come up a lot mm -hmm. in the writing about the, about the practice. And maybe we could start with that word and then just talk a bit about what Interabang is. Sure. I mean, uh, Interabang is, a, is, a, is playing the long game. Um, so it is, in that way, more of a serious endeavor and less uh, disruptive now than it will be by the time I'm finished with it. <laughs> but it's a, it's a more uh, thorough uh, endeavour. Um, so transdisciplinary, we use that word as opposed to multidisciplinary. So Interabang is an architecture and engineering practice. And the idea with using the word transdisciplinary is sort of trans means across and the um, the distinction between the definitions is that multidisciplinary is people from different disciplines working together. And there's tons of multidisciplinary companies. Transdisciplinary is about individuals working across disciplines. And that's key because it's not about architects and structural engineers and building service engineers and acousticians and heritage consultants and planners and all of that sort of, um, you know, sitting around a table and collaborating with each other. That is business as usual. It is about the individuals that actually make decisions being slightly different because of what they know, because they're able to make decisions informed by a broader skill set and a broader understanding of what's really sort of going on here. Um, and I think that over the past decades, there's been this increasing thrust towards specialisms and it has disempowered everybody in some way or another that is a practitioner in the built environment. You know, on the one hand, architects aren't able to make a lot of decisions because they don't really understand whether or not they're going to need a column there. They don't really understand about, you know, how the services are going to work. They don't understand any of this stuff. So they end up having to kind of make... You kind of make some assumptions, you make some guesses, but then, but really what you do is you end up withdrawing into the more kind of spatial, cultural elements of the, of the work, which are also, you know, they're really, really important. It's not to belittle them, but you, your, your red line is limited because of a, a lack of skills and understanding. And, you know, the number of architects that can't do trigonometry, very upsetting. Um, <laughs> and then on the other hand, engineers, they're relegated to this like making it work role, um, which is also completely disempowering because they have brilliant ideas. The things they know <laughs> need to be injected into projects like way at the beginning, not later in order to kind of realize some architects, slightly, you know, ignorant architects um, uh, vision. Um, and I don't mean that ignorance in a, in a 
sort of I'm not trying to be rude it's just that the way that the education system has been set up um, has meant that we've focused on certain elements and not other elements and that means that we don't in this country perhaps more than a lot we don't know much about a lot of the things that affect buildings and we wonder why we're being sort of edged out of important kind of decision making in the built environment. Mm-hmm. And so you've actually gone back to school. I have. You're studying, you're doing an engineering degree at the Open University in yes. London. Yes, it's loads of fun. <laughs> <laughs> there goes my social life, unfortunately. <laughs> the downside. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Um, I mean, firstly, the Open University is just this incredible institution. It's like sort of um, brilliant that it exists and offers uh, people in... Um, people who aren't able to sort of take three, four years out of their life and go and live in a campus, um, you know, the opportunity to get uh, a really fantastic education. And I just, I, I'm in love with the Open University. Um, but for me, it's about getting an engineering degree and about s- starting to learn all of these things that have felt increasingly missing from my skill set. Have you found that um, going back to school and studying engineering um, you know, formally mm. has started to change the way uh, you look at design problems now? It's changed, yeah, it's changed the way I approach a lot of things. Um, I think it's, def- it's changed the, to go back, it's definitely changed my column. Um, mm. And it's, I mean, on, in a very prosaic way it's changed the way for example I'm able to um, come up with design concepts because I'm I understand you know more I mean I'm a third year so you know I'm not super experienced but but I understand a hell of a lot more more about structures and physics and sort of um, so therefore I'm able to make much more informed decisions um, and come up with ideas that I think I, I know I wouldn't have come up with if I didn't, I didn't know this. It's changed the way I'm able to operate in the team. Um, I've, I, you know, I, re, I get really pleased when um, we're in a kind of meeting situation or something and then one of, the, uh, one of the team who comes from a structural background sort of starts to have a bit of an idea but they feel a bit like, oh, I'm not the architect so I don't get to say. And I can see the kind of genius in what they're saying and I can therefore, no, go ahead, say that. Yes, that's brilliant. Do that. <laughs> um, and, yeah, encourage and nurture that. And, I, and I'm able to do that because I have a better understanding of what they're on about. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really great. And I love it. Um, and I'm much better at maths now, which is also personal kudos for me. <laughs> I feel like Interbank has really high ambitions for the kind of work it ultimately wants to be doing. Uh, the problem, though, is that um, it's probably hard to find the clients to do that work with. And so, like, how do you, how do you go about um, finding the right people to embark on the kind of project that Interbank ultimately would want to be doing? Well, I mean, we're, we're doing a quite broad range of projects. Um, we, um, you know, from quite sort of typical so Interbank's three years old now um, and we, we've got a new build house timber on site down in South London um, that is pretty run of the mill for, I guess for a, for a practice like that in terms of brief um, and you know I think we've, we've tried to uh, we've tried to approach it with our sort of transdisciplinary heads um, and I feel like you know it will be it is it is a little different from what it might have been otherwise, but that's only something that's right at the beginning of the process. I mean, the other the, the big project that we've finished so far is um, converting the Hoover Building, which is this Grade Two star listed Egyptian Art Deco monster on the A40. I mean, it's gorgeous, but it's crazy. Um, <laughs> and um, so this was a project that it really made sense that it was, you know, structure led. The structural engineering was the thing that makes this project work. And so because we're transdisciplinary, we're able to 
adjust that balance. It's not like you know that. It's not like we're stuck with that kind of typical design team um, configuration. We can do a project where the structural engineering is absolutely, absolutely key. Otherwise, this project is not going to work because we had an existing concrete frame that was very, very efficient for its time. Um, so you could not put any kind of additional load partway through the slab or anything like that. You need to have a light structure and it needs to be crafty. Um, and so we've put this timber frame inside the existing building um, that is very, very, very tightly coordinated with all of the spatial layouts, um, but then distributes the load into the locations that um, the existing building can take. Um, and it's a two-star listed building as well, so obviously that brings with it its own. <laughs> um, so we're able to do those projects, and those projects are projects that we absolutely want to do. But as I said, Interabang is, is a long game project, and I think it's going to... I'm, I know that I'm confident that we need to be much more technically equipped in order to deal with fitting so many humans on this earth without killing ourselves. <laughs> um, and that that is something that you need to do with good science behind you and a good understanding of science and engineering. Um, and so I hope that, you know, as the years go on, that we will be able to, you know, prototype and... Um, conceive of ways of building that are genuinely uh, protecting of the environment. None of this greenwashy sustainability bullshit, you know, the real stuff. Um, and we're, we're, doing, we're, we're doing what we can in the current economic climate and climate and the current environment and everything like that. And I, I think we all are. But I think that having, uh, having a team that is got that got the social and kind of creative training of architecture but then also has that sort of really strong technical and the the kind of the imagination of an engineer as well uh, I think that's going to put us in a in a good position to help do our bit Maria thanks so much thank you for having me <laughs>Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.